0: To the choir master, a psalm of David, verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard or their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the earth. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing Hidden from its heat. The law of Adonai is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of Adonai is sure, making wise the simple. And the precepts of Adonai are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of Adonai are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned. And in keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous or willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Oh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. So some years ago, we were invited to Lake Shasta by some family who um, has a boat and uh, had a timeshare over at Lake Shasta. And We went on the boat one evening, on a clear evening, and just bobbed in the middle of the lake and looked up, and that was one of the clearest displays of the diamond sky, as the poets say, that I had ever seen in my life. Light pollution was not getting in the way. It was dark. It was crisp in the sky, and those stars took my breath away. We've all seen a display of the Milky Way at one point in our lives when it has made us say, who can deny that God put these here? We've all seen that. Unfortunately, we're seeing that less today than we used to. Light pollution is filling even our mountain now. And I don't see the stars the way I did just 20 years ago. And there are a few places now in the world. You go in Orange County and you can see the planets when they're out because they're bright, but you don't see much else. This Psalm tells us that the heavens declare the glory of God and they do so in a way that's wordless. They're out there. Day to day pours out speech. The day itself. And what you see going on with the sun, it's, it's preaching. Night to night reveals knowledge. Every star is connecting the dots of reality for us. But there's no words, it says in verse four or verse three. There's no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. It's a visual language, not an audible language. And so it's there. It's being declared, but it's not in human language. Paul has told us that in Romans chapter 1, look, the world is without excuse because God has revealed himself through creation, and here we see that the heavens are declaring God's glory, day-to-day, night-to-night is out there pouring out the message of his existence, and yet... They're out there pouring out his existence, and yet we don't always get the message. In this psalm, we have a progression that goes on here. We have, in verses 1 through 6, we have creation, right? The heavens are declaring, the skies proclaiming, day to day, night to night. Um, their voice is going out. Verse 5, then it transitions to the sun. It's like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. What does that mean? When it's rising, it's like the man that just got married and feels like he's on top of the world. He's coming out in all his glory. And the wedding guests are praising. Back then they did the honeymoon during the wedding as well. So, um. A little awkward, but you would come out and in the morning the wedding guest, like, there he is and all, he, he, the glorious one, right? He's just, he's just entered into his, his manhood, if you will, his glory. Um, that's like the sun in the morning, it says. It's coming out. And like a strong man, it then, through the day, it runs its course and then it, it, it sets on the other end. So the sun, every day, it's running its course. And now here's what's interesting is that, um, God here in this Psalm, it's very clear that God's the one who's making the sun move. God's the one who's put these heavens together because back in ancient cultures, especially Egypt, the sun was worshiped as the deity. And it made sense. I mean, if you're a pagan, it made sense because the sun gives life to the earth. We know that now through science, but they knew it intuitively that the sun is giving life to all things. And so the sun, the life giver, we we call the sun Ra, the God of all the pantheon. But here in the Psalms, yes, it recognizes that there's life-giving source from the sun. There's nothing hidden from its heat, it says in verse 6. but But God's the one who gave it its tent, the sky. God's the one who put it in its course. And so as Paul says in Romans, and as the Psalm says here, The heavens declare the glory of God. Creation, in other words, is the very first Bible. It's the first Bible, not the perfect Bible. But creation was the first declaration of the glory of God. Now, do you guys remember in the Psalms, we had chapter 8. Psalm chapter 8 was the first one where we saw David is saying, Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And then it says, and this is Psalm 8 verse 3, when I look at your heavens and the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him, right? There was this moment in Psalm 8. It came perfectly timed, right after five psalms in which david is pleading for his life lord help me absalom has taken the throne he's taken my crown they're out to get me they're trying to kill me and we saw in psalm 3 4 5 6 and 7 that there was this rhythm david was learning on the run for his life at first it's all adrenaline at first it's stumbling out the gate But soon he develops a rhythm of prayer with God and he begins to get the cadence of relying on him in all of his hardship. And then it brings us right to Psalm eight, and David finally hit it. He hit the stride, and he's able to pause to catch his breath from all of his running, and he says, Oh, this whole time, there he is, God's majesty on display, and I look at it and I'm taken aback. I'm in awe, I'm aghast. David's at Lake Shasta, or perhaps even at a place where the stars were even more brilliant before our polluted skies and our lights. And David, there he is. He was overwhelmed up to chapter eight. Then he was wonderwhelmed, And so we see him take this vision of God's glory and he takes it through Psalms 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. In which the theme of those Psalms was the godless surrounding him. You may remember this. There's the bad news, the bad news bears going all around David saying, it's all ours. The godless saying, we're going to take everything and we're going to take down the godly. And David's like, Lord, what in the world is going on? Look at them. And then in chapters 11 and 12, there were conspiracy theories and there was duplicity. People speaking out of two sides of their mouth. And David pleaded to the Lord, rescue me from this generation. Rescue me because my throne, there's a conspiracy against my own life. And then Psalm 13, Lord, where are you? And we learned there in Psalm 13, we sometimes may feel like God's abandoned us. But in those moments when we feel one way, we must pray what is real. Right, And Psalm 13 taught us, even when you feel like God isn't near, pray like he's near. So how, that's how David survived. And then in Psalm 14, there, the fool says in his heart, there's no God. And so David is moving through the culture of the godless. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> he's moving through the culture of the godless by being wonderwhelmed. That led us to the new section of the Psalms. Psalm 15 through 24. Do you remember the sandwich? Psalm 15 begins with, Lord, who shall ascend your mountain? Who shall dwell with you in your tent? Psalm 24 asks the same question. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? We hit this section, Psalm 15 to 24, which is about this movement toward the presence of God. And... Psalm 16. So that's like the bread of your sandwich, right? Who shall come live with you? So Psalm 16, move into the mustard. Psalm 16, we saw David's joy in God's presence. And many of you said how much you enjoyed Psalm 16. I'm so glad because I do too. Psalm 16 is a psalm of joy. It's a psalm of comfort. And on the other side of the sandwich, where you put, You double up on mustard of course you put the other mustard um you have psalm 23 the lord is my shepherd i shall not want he makes me lie down in green pastures he restores my soul that is also a psalm of comfort a psalm of delight in the presence of god then you move in to psalm 17 to the lettuce and the lettuce in psalm 17 we see david uh, a bit of a cry for help, a bit of a, ah, uh, remember we looked at this one. He's being slandered in Psalm 17. People are speaking ill of him when he doesn't deserve it. And he gives up his name because slander will kill your name. He says, Lord, I'm going to give up my name and adopt your name through this Psalm 17. Well, the other side of the sandwich lettuce, which is a perfectly balanced sandwich is what we're doing here. The other side is Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's another cry of despair. Another Lord, where are you, Lord, help me? So then that brings us to last week. So now we're at the cheese, Swiss on one side and what? Uh, Pepper Jack cheddar. Wait, no, what? You messed me up. Pepperjack on the other. Um, that's Psalm 18. Where David is in the midst of battle and he prays for God's deliverance and he rescues the king. We see at the end of Psalm 19, great salvation he brings to his king. That's Psalm 19.50. Well, the other side of that is Psalm 20 and 21. Uh, both of those psalms we'll see next week are the same thing. It's the king in battle and asking for God's salvation for the king in battle. Okay, so you see what's going on here. Is a sandwich is mirrored, right? So who shall live with you, God? There's a comfort psalm. There's a Lord help me psalm. And then there's the king in battle psalms. And that brings us right to the very center. The meat. Choose your protein. The protein is right here in Psalm 19. So We're at the very middle. It's flanked by the king in battle in 18, the king in battle in 20 and 21. So, The Messiah, the king, saved in battle by God. And in the middle of all this is this psalm about the Bible. About the Torah, as would have been the Jews' word for God's instruction. So as we see verse 1 through 6, creation is the first Bible. But creation is not enough as a Bible, is it? Now, Paul says people should know of God through creation, but that's not enough. And God knew, look, I will speak to people initially through my display, but they need more. And so he gives us the scriptures. Now I want to, I want to take a step back though. And say, one of the reasons I propose that atheism or agnosticism, or let's just say secularism, is on the rise in the modern world. One of the reasons is because we keep cutting down creation. Everywhere we look, there's development. There's more and more land being ruined. There's more and more pollution in our air. There's less and less of the heavens being seen. There's less and less wild. Now, I know we live in the wilderness, so we're a bit of an anomaly. But there's less and less wilderness for people to live in and see. You have to now drive to Yosemite just to see something more than a, a crow eating your garbage. Except for us, of course. But even us, we can be guilty of living our lives in our bubbles and our cars and never actually appreciating the fact that we have wilderness around us except for when oh man the storm blew all the branches and the pine needles and the leaves and i gotta clean all this up and the sap that's dripping on my car and sometimes that can be the extent of our experience in creation but here's the point and the truth is that modern society is not only cutting down creation physically but it's cutting down its time in creation And as a result, people live less and less in tune with the world, less and less in tune with what phase is the moon in or are there stars in the sky, less and less in tune with the identity of trees or animals. And we live in concrete jungles, most of the world, most of America lives in a concrete jungle. I know because when I was growing up, we um, went to a church in Orange County, and we had we we lived here and went to church in Orange County, and that was a crazy backstory. But that's that's what we did, and all the youth group in Orange County loved to make fun of the fact that I lived in the sticks, and they would say things like, "Do you have electricity? Do you have running water?" And I would always have fun with them and say. Well, yeah, we have restrooms every morning. We all meet as a community at the large pit in the middle of the forest. Do you really? Yes, we, come on. Um, But we're cutting creation down, which then leads to shutting down revelation. The cutting down of creation is leading to the shutting down of revelation. The very first Bible is being silenced. And so many people are quick to assume the default belief of Americans is increasingly, we don't know if there's a God. Because I suggest to you, we have less of the first Bible's evidence before us. There's less of the heavens declaring the glory of God. There's less trees other than what we plant and water by our hands that are growing up around us. Animals that we see in the cities are just vermin to exterminate. Man has not just created with their hands, but they have tried to outdo God with their hands. The cutting down of creation is leading to the shutting up or the shutting down of Revelation. Now, I'm not saying all this to bring an application to you guys that you should recycle your plastics and maybe you should, but this is not where I'm going. I'm not trying to come from a tree-hugging perspective and saying, this is the message of the Lord to you tonight. Now, please obey God's conviction in your life, but that's not where I want to go with this necessarily. I just want to point out that one of the things we're seeing happening is the natural byproduct of us taking down what God's put in front of us. And part of development is humanity's attempt to eliminate any reminder of God set up around us reminders of our glory and our handiwork. By the way, I read a very sad stat this week. The average child aged 10 through 14 can identify a thousand corporate logos, but cannot identify 10 local animals or plants. So no, I'm not exaggerating when I say that we live in a cut-down creation. And I think as a result, we have generations coming up with a shut-down revelation of God. And so we must find ways for our own soul to get into creation every now and then. If you feel like God's revelation to you is getting shut up, it may not be because you are ignorant. It might be because you've been around the works of our hands too much. And we need to push ourselves into the works of God's hands. It is reviving to our souls. So that's the first Bible. If that's good, the second Bible is better. So God in the first Bible creation, he gave to us general revelation, right? Notice in verse one, it says the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, in your Bible, it has capital G, lowercase O, lowercase D. God, whenever you see that in your Bible, it's a word, the word in Hebrew is Elohim. And Elohim is not a name. I find this very helpful, so pay attention and hopefully you will too. Elohim is not a name. Elohim is a title. It was a title given to anyone with authority. Kings, judges, princes, rulers, people who made laws and confirmed laws, they would be called Elohim. So Elohim is a title that we give to God. You are the great one, the king, the lawmaker, the law enforcer. It says in verse one that the heavens declare the glory of Elohim, the general concept of a God. But God reveals to Israel, and thus to the church, his personal name. When Moses was scrolling on his iPhone, oh no, excuse me, it wasn't that burning bush. It was an actual bush in the wilderness. And God, through that bush, revealed his personal name to Moses. He said, I am who I am, or I am that I am, or... I will be who I am, or I will always be who I am. The, the wording is simply am, am, I am, I am. And you can, you can play with that in so many ways because the idea is there's an eternality and an unchangingness to this God. The Elohim now becomes I am. And when we feel depressed, he is joy. When we feel weak, he is strength. When we feel scared, he is security, he's confidence. God reveals himself personally to his people as I am that I am. And from that point on, we have translated, in our Bibles, we translate I am that I am in capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. All capital Lord is I am that I am. In Hebrew, it is The English letters are Y-H-W-H, possibly pronounced Yahweh, which is actually like breathing, Yahweh, Um, because he is life, he is existence, he is breath. The Jews never said Yahweh out of their respect for his name, so they used the term, as I'm adopting now, when we come to that word, Lord, they use the term Adonai. This is God's personal name. And that's the reason I I read Adonai into the text as we read instead of just saying Lord is because I think it's helpful to see when we're saying God's title and when we're saying his personal name. So back to where we are. Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of what? Elohim. Verse seven, we now enter the second Bible, the scriptures. The law of Adonai is perfect. Verses one through six, first Bible, Elohim, general God. Verses seven through 11, Adonai, the personal name. So what's happening here? The first Bible, yes, it's telling us there is a God. The second Bible, the scriptures, is telling us who that God is. He's not just a title He's the personal I am that I am. The second, um, you see in the first Bible, we see this, uh, concept of the sun giving the, the sun as the source of life. It's going from one end, it says in verse six to the other and there's nothing hidden from its heat Um, in the second bible the scriptures we understand that look the first bible is searching for us physically the heat is physically coming down to us the heat the light from the sun is physical life to all of creation but in the bible it's spiritual heat it's spiritual light it's, it's, it's peering into our soul. That sun is peering into the land, into creation. But this sun, the Bible, is peering into our souls and into our hearts. And so we see this progression. We see that the first Bible is general knowledge of God. The second Bible is specific wisdom from Adonai. All right. So let's look at the second Bible, verse 7. Okay, so in the first Bible, the heavens are the declaration of the glory of God. Now in verse 7 through 11, the scriptures are the translation of the glory of God. So we have the declaration from the heavens, now the scriptures are the translation. Remember, the heavens are declaring, but there is no words, right? It's wordless communication. The scriptures now put words in the heavens mouth. And so that we see the specific, okay? So here's the translation of the glory of God, the scriptures. The law of Adonai is perfect. Or, the Hebrew word is also whole. It's entire. There are no holes in his word. It's complete. Just as the sun, by the way, it says that it it completes its course, right? In verse six, it's rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them. Well, the scriptures are perfect. They're complete. They deal with life from birth to death. They deal with life from every end of the globe, from every situation, from your deepest depression to your highest joys. There's nothing that the scriptures don't have to say in every season of life. They are whole. They are complete. And that's why they revive the soul. Because I am not perfect and complete. My soul is full of holes. My soul is not complete. And when I am spreading my soul to all the things that have demands upon my life, when my loves are being carefully dished out like a, Carefully curated, colonated meal. I am feeling less. I'm feeling like I'm being drained. I'm feeling dragged. But in the scriptures, they are whole. They're complete. They're entire. And my soul is made whole. It's revived. The sun gives life to the plants. The scriptures give life to my soul. In verse uh, continuing verse seven. So there's six things it says about the scriptures. That was the first. Seven, second half. The testimony of Adonai is sure, making wise a simple. It's sure. Or in other words, we can have confidence in it. It's, you can also, the Hebrew talks about trustworthiness or faithfulness. So the testimony of the Lord is trustworthy. It's faithful. That's why it's sure. It makes wise the simple. Are you sure? Yeah, we're sure. Because look, the fool has said in his heart there's no god. The Proverbs in chapter 12 verse 15 talk about the fool is this person. This is this is Proverbs 12:15. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. Good. But the wise man listens to advice. The fool is right in his own eyes. The reason that the scriptures make wise the simple is because they give us a sure answer. They give us something to put our lives upon, something to listen to, to follow. The fool doesn't do this. The fool doesn't say, oh, the scriptures, let me build my life on this. The fool says, I'm going to call what I see, what I see. I'm sure about what I see. I'm sure about what I think. I'm sure about what I hear or what what I feel. You see, the fool puts his confidence in his senses. But the wise puts his confidence in the scriptures. Now, today... Um, another another reason for the growth of secularism is that we have exalted as king above all logic and reason something called empiricism. Empiricism is the practice of testing everything. The truth or falseness of anything is tested through the senses. That's empiricism. So in other words, then this is the this is the dogma of science. In other words, if I cannot test it and see it and feel it and hear it, if there's not some sort of communication to the human senses, it cannot exist or it cannot be determined as true. Science has been playing the fool, wise in their own eyes. Now, of course there is good science too. We are should not throw all science out. I'm talking about the spirit of antichrist science. The spirit of science says it's right if it's in my own eyes. But we must we must be careful that we are building our life upon scripture because it is sure. So that's how we are made wise is because we are not trusting our senses. Our senses are not sure. (laughs) People say all the time, don't they? Well, I just don't think that's right for me. Which you are you talking about? Ice cream is right for me (laughs) some days. And then the days when I feel like being more fit and healthy, ice cream is not right for me. I am a conflicted person. Who sometimes says ice cream is right for me and other times says ice cream is not right for me. Which me are we talking about? When someone says it's not right for me, you have the right to say to them, do you even know what's right for you? Because some days you want to sleep in and other days you don't. Some days you recognize I need sleep and other days you recognize I need to work. Well, hello, which is guiding your life? We have no sureness in ourselves. We are fools if we think we do. But the testimony of the Lord is sure because it doesn't change. And therefore, we are made wise if we put our confidence in the scriptures. Third, verse 8. The precepts of Adonai are right, rejoicing the heart. The funny thing is, we often, because we're Americans and we love freedom, um... And that's not a bad thing. But sometimes what happens is we think we can only feel happy if we're free, which then we take to mean you cannot tell me what to do. I have to be free, especially when we're younger. We don't like being told what to do. And but here we see that scriptures are right, rejoicing the heart. (laughs) And here's what I've learned in life. Rules are good when the rules are right. And I am happier when there is structure, order, and guidance, the right rules in my life. I'm actually happier. What I've learned in life is that when I have way too much freedom, I get frozen in my liberty. I find this happening all the time. Well, no one's telling you what to do right now, Pastor Brandon but I don't know if I should, I, I have 17 things to do. I don't know which one I should do right now. Sometimes you just want to be told which one is the best thing to do right now and then you're happy. I can go on and not question my, my, my choice. See, too much freedom actually freezes us with this fear of I'm going to do something stupid because more than likely we do. We love having some sort of guideline. Sometimes um, in my classes, I'll give students a completely open assignment. Okay, I want you to turn in a talk about anything you learned in this unit we did. And invariably, inevitably, every single time, I get several people who say, "Give us an idea. Give us a prompt." We're uncomfortable with this liberty, so I'll you know I'll give them several prompts. Because this is, this is built into us. We actually recognize we like rules. We just don't like dumb rules. And that's why it says that the scriptures or the precepts or the statutes of the Lord, of Adonai, are right. And because they're the right rules, I rejoice. Exactly. Fourth, middle of verse 8. The commandment of Adonai is pure, enlightening the eyes. Isn't this good? We have fuzzy vision. We don't even know which news chores to trust and the ones we think we trust. We probably shouldn't. Just generally true, probably. Uh, There's so much confusion, just as an example there. Uh, We don't have any enlightenment. I don't think there's much enlightenment in the state of our nation. Because there's nothing pure being presented to us. Everything's muddled with agenda. There's, or duplicity like we looked at earlier in the Psalms. They say one thing, but they're wanting you to think this or believe that, or there's a lot of just roundabout discussion. There's no purity of news. There's no purity of speech. There's no, it's all muddled and mixed. But the word of God is pure. There's no agenda here. God simply speaks truth as it is and it cleaves perfectly. The law, the word of God is like a two-edged sword, right? And it can divide down to joint and marrow, soul and spirit. Some people don't know there's a difference between soul and spirit. The word of God can find it. That's how clear, how clean, how pure it is. And so through scripture, we can have enlightenment We can see clearly. The Christian worldview, Christians may not always be perfect by a long shot, but the Christian worldview is the clearest and cleanest of all the worldviews because it was received from a pure revelation. Other worldviews, there's a lot of you have to kind of explain, well, where does evil come from and such? But the Christian worldview has a very clean story and it has a beginning and an end and it brings us hope. And so we want a view of the world based upon scripture because it is pure. It enlightens our eyes. Um, what am I on? Fifth. The fear, verse nine. The fear of Adonai is clean, enduring forever. Yeah, the respect or the reverence of Adonai. So it's an odd phrase to use for his word. But it comes from the Proverbs or from the Israel's wisdom teachings. To fear the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And so that all comes. Respect for the Lord, it means you have respect for his word. And more often than not, the way you see people talk about or handle scripture goes hand in hand with their views and beliefs in God. Reverence for his word is reverence for him. And his... So this reverence for him is clean, enduring forever. Need we say more? Timeless. Scripture is timeless. It spoke to medieval believers. It spoke to first century believers. It speaks to 21st century believers. And I believe it will speak to my great, 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 if we're still here, great, great, grandchildren, believers. Because it is timeless. It endures forever. And six, the rules or the just decrees or it's what? Is it command? It's a something else in New King James. Um, the rule of Adonai is true and righteous altogether. And that, that really is just a concluding, like it's all righteous, right? It's just a concluding. All of this is true and all of it is righteous altogether. So then we are told, more to be desired are they. All these synonyms for scripture, law, testimony, precepts, commandments, fear, rules, these are more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey in the drippings of the honeycomb. The drippings of the honeycomb. This is fresh honey. This is not honey that's in a honey bear jar. This is raw, unfiltered, dripping right from the queen bee herself, honey. Drippings of honey. Now, what this reminds me of is 1 Samuel chapter 14, where uh, Jonathan, in 1 Samuel 14, Jonathan had led Saul's army against the Philistines to a great victory. And Saul, in his excitement, because Saul was not a person who trusted the Lord much. He trusted in himself. He trusted in his senses and his flesh. Saul was all excited and said, let's ride the momentum. If anybody stops to eat anything, they shall die. We must kill the Philistines before we eat. He should have consulted the Lord because as they're chasing the Philistines, the army is growing weak. They're growing fatigued. They're getting depressed. Like we don't even want to follow Saul anymore. Well, Jonathan, this is Saul's son, Jonathan, this is like prince of the kingdom He does not hear his dad's law. Did he really? Did he not? It says he claims ignorance. I did not hear it. And in, in 1 Samuel 14, it says that Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. So he put out the tip of the staff that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth. It said in the verse before that they were in the forest and they saw honey was dropping. This is the dripping of the honeycomb. And all the soldiers are walking by salivating, going, Oh, is it worth my life? I don't know. I'm pretty tempted. And Jonathan just, I'm going to take some. And he does. And it says, he put his hand to his mouth and his eyes became bright. Bright. Everyone's drooping, and uh, but his eyes are alive. Then one of the people said, Your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, Cursed be the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. The people were faint. Then Jonathan said, My father has troubled the land. See how my eyes have become bright because I tasted A little of this honey. The people are faint. They're weary. Jonathan tastes the honey. Dripping honeycomb. And he's energized. What we learn here. Is that scripture. Will refresh us. Scripture will energize us. God's word in our life. Will give us the forward momentum we need. But the flesh. The rash hasty sensory driven decisions the flesh cannot refresh that is what king saul did i don't want any we got to take care of this on our own but jonathan i am going to let god's word in my life the flesh cannot refresh us but the scriptures will revive us and so we see that it's compared to the drippings of honeycomb sisters brothers when you feel faint when you're getting weary when you need refreshing, don't say, I hope Fox and friends will do it for me. We need the honeycomb because scripture is that for us. It's sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them, your servant is warned and keeping them. There is great reward. It's like a treasure map. The scriptures are not only guiding my life, but they're taking me to reward. Reward. Yes, I don't know anyone who on their deathbed said, I regret following the teachings of the Lord. There have been many atheists who have converted on their deathbed and who said, I regret everything and I wish. The thief on the cross regretted everything and said, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. No one has regretted. Now, some have despised their upbringing. That's true. But they haven't tasted the honeycomb themselves. Their parents forced it. And you wouldn't like anything with a spoon going down your throat either. Um, In keeping them, there's great reward. Okay, so, section 1, verses 1 through 6. The heaven's declaration of the glory of God. 7 through 11 is scripture. The scripture's translation of the glory of God. We know God's great. Now the scriptures are telling us plainly with words. And now, verses 12 through 14, Jesus is the incarnation of the glory of God. This is the progression we've seen. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 2 said that in the old days, God spoke to us through his prophets, scriptures. In the last days, he speaks to us through his son, Jesus. The first Bible is... The heavens and creation declaring God's glory. The second Bible is the words written down for us. So the declaration, the interpretation, but the third and final Bible is Christ himself. The word become flesh. It's the demonstration. We have, God's glory has been declared God's glory has been translated for us, but now God's glory is demonstrated before us in the incarnation, in the embodiment, in the enfleshment of Christ. And so his revelation has moved from general to more specific to a single person who has fulfilled Christ said all scripture has been fulfilled in me. The scriptures spoke of me. I am the pinpoint of which all the streams, all the rivers have gathered right here. And I am the demonstration, the parable, the visual of what you've been reading is meant to look like in a human life. So we go from, look at this world, there is a God, to look at these words, this is the personal God whom I'm praying to and calling upon to look at the word become flesh, let's follow him. Jesus is the ultimate and perfect revelation of God. And that's why when we come to the scriptures and sometimes the Old Testament's like, I don't know, do we still do this? We then look at Jesus and say, He's fine-tuned it even more. So, are you allowed to eat bacon? <laughs> Jesus told the early church, "Go ahead; it's all clean now." We could go down the list on all kinds of things. Which is one of you bacon lovers? You're you're probably in good hands. Um, yes, the the revelations come down, and now what we see in this psalm is the sun, the stars, the sun to the scriptures, to the soul. And so we see Jesus in verses 12 through 14 because we see the psalmist praying the scriptures into his life. Because as Jesus was the word embodied, we want to embody the scriptures. Not just study them in our heads, we want to embody them. How do we embody them? How do we incarnate this revelation? Just like verse 12 and 14 teach. Through prayer. Verse 12. Who then can discern his errors? I can't identify every single one of mine. So he says, declare me innocent from hidden faults. The ones I can't think of. Lord, search me. Did you notice in verse 6? When it talked about the sun, it said, There is nothing hidden from its heat. Well, the scripture does the same. When we read scripture and pray, it will show us the hidden faults. Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I mentioned it earlier, I'm gonna read it to you now. Hebrews chapter four, verses twelve through thirteen. It sounds just like the sun described here in the Psalm. Hebrews four, twelve. The word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account Wow, there it is. This prayer right here. Lord, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Search me, oh God, look within me. Because you can imagine the psalmist thinking of the sun. You can't escape in desert heat like Israel. You cannot escape the heat of the sun. You sit under a shade tree and yeah, there's maybe a little breeze, but there's gnats everywhere and, and you're sweating still and it's a little more tolerable. But man, the heat's oppressive. It's everywhere. You cannot run away from it nor can we from the word of god and when we read the scriptures and pray them into our lives they will uncover things that we didn't know were there yeah. oh yeah william knows all about it so ask him later he can tell you all his sins <laughs> it is it's, friends there is so much of us that we don't know and and the culture today is all about discovering ourselves that's the message everywhere is find out who you are and what you're here to do. Even CBU, Cal Baptist University, slogan is find your purpose. Friends, how do you find your purpose unless we allow God's word to dig into who we are? I'm only going to look at the things I want to know about myself. But scripture plus prayer equals, oh no. But it always ends up with, oh Yes. Because the hidden, the hidden things, we will always live a closed off life if there's hidden things. God wants to free us and open those things up and say, you know I've seen them all along and I haven't struck you down. So just you admitting or acknowledging that this is going on, you will finally be able to breathe. Finally be able to breathe. Keep back, verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. That's willful sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Here's the prayer, Lord, I understand that my heart doesn't always want to heed. It doesn't always want to obey your word. Please hold me back from those things because if I don't, then I'm going to dive headlong like a pig into slop and go into those sins. And what's going to happen is they are going to rule over me. The most miserable life on this planet is the person whose sins rule over them. There is nothing miserable about having your sin revealed and having your sin confessed. It is liberating. Yes, it's messy for a minute, but as soon as you realize I've been living in this slop, you're like, Oh, finally, I, I know I can see clearly now the rain is gone or I don't know what happens, but <laughs> the sin is gone. I can see clearly now. Like, there's this prayer of deliverance. Sin is anything in your life that has dominion over you. Is it a sin to watch this? Or to eat this, or to take part in that—like a lot of gray questions you get asked all the time. You, you ask yourself a lot of. It doesn't say in the Bible this is a sin. Well, look, if it has mastery over you, you should probably confess it and give it to God. God has created us to be free, so Lord, please let this not have dominion over me. That's why I declare me innocent from hidden faults, because if I don't, it's going to rule me. It's going to master me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Verse 14. So let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. Adonai, my rock and my redeemer. This is a total open psalm. It's a beautiful psalm. C.S. Lewis called it. He said this in his commentary. And he mentioned this psalm. He said, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter. Psalm 19. The greatest in the Psalms. And one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, this, is, this was a literary master, C.S. Lewis, read deeply and widely. He was a medieval scholar, and he says Psalm 19 is perhaps the greatest words in the entire history of the world because it's beautiful. It's flow from stars to sun to scripture to the soul. It's, it's flow from general creation declaring the glory of God to specific scripture translating the glory of God to the embodied incarnation of the word of God in Christ, right? There's this movement. And then for us into us, like we see the general, now we're getting the word and now we're praying the word into us so that like Christ, we embody the scriptures. Why? Why this flow? Why this flow from creation to scripture to the soul? It's because, friends, we will shine when we, like creation, obey the word of God. Why does creation declare the glory of God? Because it does what he said he wanted it to do. And creation never rebels. It doesn't say, I don't want to shine today. The sun didn't say, can I sleep in? Every day day, the sun's up at its alarm clock. God says, shine, run your course. And the sun does it like a warrior. It says with joy, it runs its course. Creation heeds the word of God. Hence it declares his glory. We declare his glory when we heed and obey the word of God. That's why the psalm ends with these prayers. Lord, search me because if I'm not obeying your word, I am not glorifying you. But we want to. And so we pray the scriptures in. We pray out the things that don't want God's word in our lives. That's where the church will glorify God today. Yep, the humans are going to keep cutting down creation and shutting up revelation, but they cannot, even if they want to shut down our churches as well. Well, we're at the trees, let's get the churches. Even if they want to do that, they can't shut down your declaration of his glory through your adherence to his word. That cannot be shut down. They can kill people for obeying God's word, but the more they kill the people who keep his word, the more his word will be magnified because we are saying this is worth our lives. You cannot shut God's revelation up in his people when they obey him. And that's what the early church demonstrated and why the Roman Empire was eventually converted is because they loved not their lives to death and the word of God was glorified to the world because of their obedience, even in the face of hardship. You can't silence the glory of God in the obedience of his people. Never can, never will. So flip, uh, I'm just gonna read a couple quick ones to you guys. You guys already know Matthew 5, 14. You are the light of the world. They will know you by your good works. Or so let your good works shine forth that they may see you and glorify God in heaven. Because you're the light of the world. Let your good works be seen, Jesus said. Uh, Philippians chapter two, verse 12 says this. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, there you go, obedience, so now not only as in my presence, Paul says, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, live out your salvation. If you've been saved, live it out. Be in obedience to the word for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. What happens if we do this? This happens. Do all things without grumbling and questioning that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish. In the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Whoa. We become the constellations, the stars, the sun, the moon, shining to the world the glory of God as we allow him to work his salvation in. Through us, are we saved? Then let's obey him. That will shine like the heavens declaring the glory of God. Friends, we're the lie of the world. So we must let scripture translate us. If we want to declare his glory, let scripture translate that glory to us and let scripture incarnate that glory in us. So translate, okay. So scripture needs to translate us. We're so big on, hmm, this is what it's saying. And yep, I understand it. There are times when we need to read the Bible in a way that we don't question it, but it questions us. Not, "Whoa, I wonder what this means. But let it say to you, oh, I wonder what you're doing with your life there. Oh, I wonder if you're really trusting me here. Let the scripture translate us to show us our error, to show us the right path. And then let the scriptures be incarnated in us. And that comes through prayer. We don't just read it. We don't just study it. We ingest it. We let it digest into our sinews, our tissues, every part of our body. We become one with it and we begin to embody it to the point where we no longer have to say, what should I do here? But it becomes part of who we are to reflexively respond scripturally. That's when you know you're incarnating the word of God. You reflexively respond scripturally. That is the glory of God in the obedience of his people. And that cannot happen. That cannot happen without prayer. Prayer is the way the word gets into our lives. Prayer is the way sermons work into our lives. Prayer is the way that God says, here's my word and here's you. Let's connect them. Only in prayer. So when you read scripture, in which you should, never read without praying with God. When you pray, connect your prayers to the scriptures. Every day, I have never met a mature Christian who declares the glory of God with their life. than I have, I've never, I said that all wrong. I have never met a Christian who declares the glory of God with their life who doesn't read and pray every day. Or at least regularly. Only the strong ones do that. That's just, it's just a truth. It's just a pattern. It's a, it's a reality. And so, friends, St. Francis of Assisi said, Preach the gospel always. Use words when necessary. The heavens are declaring without words. We will too with our obedience. Occasionally, we can explain to people what we're doing. But if we live in obedience to scripture we will always be preaching the gospel. Lord, as we come now to your table, the one you are inviting us to, the one you've opened your arms in your life to provide...